Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another segment of the Cisco and Falzon Hour broadcast in politics. We have a great show today. We have Daniel Kovalik. He's a professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh, an author of The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, How the CIA and the Deep State Have Conspired to Vilify Russia. So he'll, he should be in. He was supposed to be in last week, but last minute uh, emergency and he couldn't be here. But we are here to bring on another show. Mark, how was your week and uh, yes. what's, your, what's your rant of the week? My rant of the week is social media. Um, I saw a very disturbing clip about the head of Twitter and how he has no concerns or regard whatsoever to our First Amendment. Um, His attitude was the First Amendment is what we want it to be. It's disgraceful. And where are the damn D.C. GOP to put an end to this? Where are they? Exactly. That's my rant of the week. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's, it's definitely... Well, uh, senile... Joe has come out and set the new world order and right away the media the corporate media said that's a conspiracy that's not true <laughs> you know we have we have uh, senile he is really outrageous he came out with something another brilliant moment by saying that we're going to suffer a real shortage in food. A food crisis is coming. Now, haven't we been telling everyone about the case of the food? This war in Ukraine has actually created more of an issue. We have fertilizers that are not being transported. We also have gas and oil. Even the Europeans, who depend so much on gas and oil, are basically running to see where they can get another source to supply for next winter. So it's really, really comical that these people went into, oh, by the way, we need to go in there and implement a no-fly zone. Yeah, what does that actually mean to everyone out there that does not know? No-fly zone means that if you, if we have F-15s and F-17s out there and shoot down a Russian firefighters, I mean, not uh, one of these MiGs, jets, guess what's going to happen? We're going to go into war with Russia directly. And then the, the other part that really is troublesome is the fact that if we're going to really sanction Russia, why don't we sanction China? China's helping Russia. Iran is helping Russia. India is helping Russia. Let's sanction them. If we're really serious about sanctioning people, okay, let's go ahead. But they won't. Oh, they have, they, you know, the Obamas and the Pelosi's and the Bidens and even 
crack pipe uh, Hunter Biden has a lot of inve- they have a lot of investment in China. That will never happen. And I, I can bet you right now, once uh, Xi Jinping, which is the uh, the dictator from from China, once he invades Taiwan, we're not going to do anything. We're not. And we're not going to even expo- uh, impose any sanctions because China can just go ahead and cut, a, cut us off. And that would not be nice. So that's the reason they're not really doing anything about implementing any sanctions against against the, the Chinese, even though they're helping them. But let's go ahead and, and um, Mark, anything else? Yeah, um, it, it's funny you uh, mentioned that because, you know, there's this big controversy going on. Where Biden yeah. now is in Europe saying, oh, these uh, uh, sanctions we're applying against Russia weren't meant to deter them. When there's upteen news clips of members of his administration saying just that, that these, these uh, sanctions are there to deter the Russians. Now, right. uh, he's, he's in Europe embarrassing us. Because who the hell wants this guy somewhere in person because he doesn't have control of his faculties fully? So uh, I'm really concerned about that. Yeah. Let's uh, bring in our darling and calling our our guests. Hello? Hello. Good evening. Hello. Professor Professor Kovalec, how are you? This Good. Is, how uh, are you? All right. This is the Cisco and Falzone Hour. We are excited to be interviewing you tonight. Since and I'm excited as week, well. Thank you. Yeah. Since last week was you were unable to um, come on the program. You know, I, I think that your book, The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, how the CIA and the deep state have conspired to vilify Russia. If anyone who, who, who wants to read a great book, go out there and, and, and get it. I just wanted to bring that up because I think it's, it's well, thank it's, you. It's, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to promote your book on, on, on the air. Um, but welcome uh, again. Um, what fascinated me about, Besides the book, it's the fact that you have such a vast amount of experience all over the world, Nicaragua, Colombia, everywhere. You're well-traveled. Yes, and I was in Syria twice last year, and Lebanon. Yeah, I've been Iran. Yeah, I've been around the world. Um, Still have a lot of places to go, but yeah, I've been a few places in the meantime. And you, your your specialty in, in human rights, uh, a human rights advocate. Um, how do you see the world today when it comes to human rights? That was my first question to you. Well, I would say a couple things. One, that probably there's not been a worse time in the world for human rights. Um, 
than now in many ways. If you look at the number of migrants, I think we have 30 million or so uh, more than in all of human history, most of that due to to war and repression. Um, and at the same time, the other thing is that a lot of um, what passes for human rights advocacy is often uh, veiled attempts to promote war. Uh, I have found that that's increasingly true. And of course, war and sanctions as well, and a lot of human rights groups support sanctions, lead to suffering and lead to uh, to death, you know. And um, so on many counts, uh, there's a lot of reasons to be, well, critical and unhappy about the state of the world today. That's not to say there isn't hope and there always is hope, but I would say that we're not in a great state in terms of the human rights situation. Okay. So is that due to the fact that most countries now are are not, they have become more totalitarian in their, in their political system? Or is it because there's a changing world? Like uh, I think uh, uh, Biden just said, the new world order. Yeah, well, that's an interesting term because George H.W. Bush used that term in the late 80s to signify the end of uh, the East Bloc. And what he meant was that the U.S. would have sole dominion over the world, which the U.S. has had up till now. I'm not sure what Biden means by that, right? Because I don't think Biden means something else. So I, I uh, maybe he's just referencing uh, what what Bush the Elder um, was saying. Do I think there's more totalitarianism in the world? Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. I think, to me, the greatest scourge in the world, and, and it's the scourge that the Nuremberg justices saw and that the founders of the UN saw is war. Mm. And we have, you know, multiple wars happening throughout the world. Um, Very devastating ones. Again, those are largely uh, contributing to the incredible migrant crisis around the world. And so I would think that is the biggest contributor to human rights violations. And again, the founders of the UN saw that, the justices at Nuremberg saw that, that war was the most essential evil because all the other evils uh, flowed from it, including genocide, including the Mm -hmm. Holocaust itself in World War II. And I see that to be the same today. Right. But... You know, wait, I wanted to chime in as far as these human rights go. I would think Mm -hmm. we're entering a dark chapter because here we, the United States, supposedly the beacon of freedom, uh, now have instituted an official gulag. We have still almost 100 people, no charges filed, no bail permitted, and they're languishing in jail. And I think further... We are no longer a nation of laws. We're a nation of men because just witness the Mm -hmm. Democrats 
breaking laws with impunity right and left with no repercussions. I think, yeah, we're, we're entering a dark ages of human rights. That's all. Your take on that? Um... Well, I agree. I, I agree with you in many ways, and I assume the gulag you're, you're referencing, I think, is, is Guantanamo. I think. No, which, no, I'm talking about the one in Washington, D.C. with the uh, January 6th protesters. Mm-hmm. Well, that I'm would be that one as well. It's a political prisoner. Well, I, I think there are a lot of political prisoners uh, as a result of that. I mean, obviously, some of the people involved engaged in some violent acts, which warranted some type of punishment, but many people didn't do much of anything except walk inside the Capitol and they got years in prison, which I agree is a, that amounts to a political persecution. So I agree with you to that extent, but of course we can't forget Guantanamo, which literally is a gulag where people uh, were literally sold to the CIA to be arrested and, and put in, um, you know, a, basically a torture chamber. So there's a lot of gulags. I mean, we have to remember the U.S. has only about, what, 5 to 6% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prisoners. I mean, it's incredible how much we incarcerate people. And again, for almost well, nothing. That's because we don't have a homogeneous society, though. Well, I mean, I mean like You yeah. can't compare our crime statistics to a nation like Japan, for instance. Well, yeah. maybe, but I mean, uh, you could c- compare it to other places that are multi-ethnic. I mean, Russia has many ethnicities. China, I think, has a hundred ethnicities or so. Um, but in any case, it is an outrageous number of prisoners, and in some of the worst conditions, you saw. In fact, there was someone who was going to be extradited to the U.S. to Texas, and. Uh, the EU refused to extradite him because of the conditions in Texas, which they found was tantamount to torture. You know, so I mean, we have a lot of problems in this country in terms of incarceration and the treatment of prisoners. Um, and yeah, in terms of the rule of law, I agree that we don't have a rule of law uh, for the most part. I do agree it is a rule of men and women and their own political proclivities, and we see that more and more. Um, And, of course, the Supreme Court has become a super legislature, right? I mean, it really is the most powerful branch now in terms of legislation in a way that I don't think was ever contemplated. And, yeah, I mean, more than ever, people are being appointed by both sides uh, based on their own political loyalties. And I, I, you know, I agree that's very troubling. And I don't – and also what it does, and, and some of the justices have said this, it, it's ultimately going to undermine people's faith in the courts and in the Supreme Court in particular, right? And the only thing the Supreme Court has is the faith of the people. They don't have arms. They don't have the purse. The Congress has. All they have is their legitimacy, and I think that is being um, right. slowly uh, you know, whittled away at, for sure. Okay. Uh, 254, do you have a question for Mr. Kovalec? Hello? 
No question. Okay. So one of the topics uh, of, of the book, uh, The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, Russia has become a nuclear power, I mean, for, for a long time. What's the obsession with Russia in, in, in your estimation? So our listening audience. Can, well, it's, can... it, it's a, it's a, it's a very good question because obviously during the Cold War, the obsession was communism, right? And I think mm-hmm. the, Russians, the Russians believed that if they gave up communism, that they would be welcome again by the West and into the West. And of course, that never really happened. And of course, that's Russia's, uh, one of Russia's great frustrations because they never really understood why that never happened. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the newer obsession is simply that uh, the U.S., the West and the U.S. in particular, don't want significant economic and military competitors in the world. And uh, with the rise of Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union, of course, Russia was um, down and out for some time. Um, economically, militarily, and Putin helped, you know, uh, build Russia up again. And I think that's probably the greatest offense is that it now represented some sort of challenge economically, particularly to the U.S. And I think that the U.S. has wanted to weaken Russia for that reason. And the the interesting thing, and I've seen a number of commentators say that, that, that the current struggle over Ukraine and the sanctions against Russia that the U.S. is, is imposing are as much about weaning Europe off of Russia than anything else and, and right. being willing, truthfully, to, to hurt the economies of the EU to do that. And again, I think a lot of it comes down to intercapitalist competition, really, that, that the U.S. sees itself as a waning power, which it is economically mm-hmm. and diplomatically and politically, not so much militarily. Um, and so I think everything that the U.S. does internationally is about that. And I think Russia, you know, the antipathy towards Russia is all about that. I think the other thing it's about is that, you know, the U.S. spends over $700 billion a year on the military, which is more than the next 11 countries combined, you know, compare that to Russia, which spends like $70 billion a year. So that's 10%. It's really less than 10% because the U.S. is now poised to spend something closer to $800 billion. Um, and to justify that, they need enemies, right? And so, and right. I think Russia has always been a convenient enemy, again, particularly because of the first Cold War, most of us have in our DNA this kind of <laughs> hatred towards Russia that's been kind of pumped into us. And I think, again, that's another interest in continuing to vilify it, is to justify the continued expenditures on the military, which have bled this country very, very badly. I mean, right. um, I saw that the wars since the collapse of the Soviet Union, the wars the U.S. 
has fought in have cost us $13 trillion. Wow. And what has it really done for us, right? And meanwhile, you know, we have infrastructure falling down. I live in Pittsburgh. You know, we famously a few weeks ago had a bridge, <laughs> major bridge that just collapsed. And we see this all the time. I mean, um, so we've bled the country to fight these wars. Uh, and again, half of that money, I think I've I've seen it's like six trillion dollars or so has gone to the defense contractors and they, and I think they push these wars in a big way, um, which of course we were warned by a Republican president, President Eisenhower, warned us about this military industrial complex, and I think it's a right. real thing. Yeah, definitely. You you brought an excellent point in regards to um, going after Russia economically because. If, you, if anyone out there remembers, uh, Russia and Germany were going to sign an agreement with the Nordstrom uh, II pipeline that was going to produce gas for Germany. Because Germany, because of their climate issues, uh, they decided that they're going to get rid of all their nuclear plants and depend on Russia for gas. And that issue really was a problem. Yeah, the U.S. really didn't want Nord Stream 2 to happen because, again, they, the U.S. is the one who wants to supply Europe yes. uh, with their fossil fuels and not Russia. And so, and so for the moment, Nord Stream 2 has been delayed, though I'm not sure if it will be you know, completely canceled. But in the meantime, you do see a number of European countries still buying natural gas from Russia because they need it. And and it's right there, right? To buy it from the U.S. would be more uh, costly you're, because of the distance. You're uh, but they, but it is a huge motivating factor. Yeah. Well, the director of the largest gas and oil company in France just came out and said, we cannot get rid of uh, – we're not going to follow with the sanctions to Russia because if we do that, half of the European economy will collapse. And then on top of that, and I quote, we signed a 25-year agreement with Russia. <laughs> I don't know if you were aware of that situation. So the economic – I mean, you, you've answered my question. What, what's the obsession? Is econo the economic factor. Yeah, exactly. You know, and there's a few things. So you got the, you got the natural gas issue. You have the issue about, again, continued defense spending. And then the other issue, of course, is that with the melting of the ice in the North Pole, you have now this big fight over the shipping lanes, right? Because now you're going to be able to ship things uh, from, you know, Russia to the U.S. or Russia to Canada, for example, over the North Pole for the first time ever. And they're concerned, again, that Russia's going to have access to all these sea lanes and the U.S. wants to have more of a monopoly over that. So a lot of this really is economic. But, of course, economic in a way that's not going to benefit us, you and me, you know, because in the meantime, gas and oil prices are going through the roof and people like us are paying more and, and inflation's yeah. increasing. 
And so people are going to get hurt. You know, the regular guy in the U.S. and the regular guy in Russia. But a lot of these companies are going to make a lot of money on all this. And, I, and of course, that's what this is about. You know, our representatives represent those people, uh, the rich and powerful, much more than they represent us in, in reality. Of course. Now, another factor besides the economic, and I, I wanted to get your feedback on this, does Putin want to rewrite the European security order wholesale and roll back the democratic NATO gains of the past two decades? What, what's your take on that? Well, I'm not sure he wants to roll back the you know, democracy, but I do think for sure he wants NATO to withdraw from his borders in, in a way that the U.S. would want Russia to withdraw from our borders if, you know, if they had troops, for example, in Mexico and or in Canada, right? right? And uh, people have to remember, after, you know, when the East Bloc was collapsing, and I remember this quite vividly because I was a young man at the time, um, and Germany, the question of German reunification was, um, being discussed, uh, James Baker, the Secretary of State of the United States, told Gorbachev that if he allowed the reunification of Germany, that NATO would never move one inch east of Germany, because of course he would argue. He said, "Well, we wouldn't need to, right? Because the East Bloc, the Warsaw Pact, would be gone." And Gorbachev agreed to that, and of course. No sooner was that promised than NATO was advanced up to Russia's borders, including to in, into some you know a number of ex-Soviet countries, put missiles in countries like Poland, and I think yeah that is something Putin would like to to change in, in the, yeah in the same way in fact i've seen some experts call that the reverse cuban missile crisis right when when the soviet union tried to put missiles in cuba we almost went to war over that right um we would never tolerate the sort of thing that russia has had to tolerate in terms of nato so i don't think russia cares the, what the nature of these countries are i think it just wants NATO, which is clearly an anti-Russian entity, right? It was created to confront the Soviet Union. It exists to confront Russia. That's that's why it exists. And they want NATO to withdraw from its territories. I think that's what it's seeking. Although, uh, you know, I'm not sure that's going to happen. Again, at this point, I think they would settle for neutrality in terms of Ukraine and Finland. Right. They want to make sure that that large swath of border never becomes a NATO entity. Um, and I think, you know, that that's their big concern, really. Definitely. Um, you want to um, provide us with the uh, the website and, and how we can get your book? Yeah, well, thank you, first of all, for asking that. So, first of all, you can... Of course, get it in traditional means. You can go to Amazon. You can go to Barnes and Noble's website. Um, you can go to your local bookstore, and if they don't have it, they can order it for you. 
but a good way kind of uh, to do it, if you go to skyhorsepublishing.com and look up my name, Dan Kavalik, K-O-V-A-L-I-K, all my books come up there, including The Plot to Scapegoat Russian. It gives you a number of options of how to buy it, and you can just click on to the button and buy it however you feel comfortable doing that. Got it. Got it. Uh, now, I was thinking the, last week uh, before you were going to come on the program, another goal, trying to analyze, we had, we had a forensic psychiatrist, uh, psychologist, and she's been studying Vladimir Putin, his uh, childhood and what he's been through. And one of the things that she mentioned is that if he feels like he's been put pushed right to the wall, he's going to fight back. And one of the things, and he's going to really come full force. One of the things that I was thinking is, it's Putin's goal to be to, to really collapse the U.S. dollar, the euro. Well, I don't, like I said, don't it's think a, it's that's an economic economic war. I'm not sure that was his goal up till the time that the sanctions were put on Russia. I think the main goal, of course, now is economic survival with these sanctions, of course, that Biden has imposed, which um, make it difficult to near impossible for Russia to transfer monies and do trade via the SWIFT banking system and via um, – the ruble, uh, Putin is now looking for different ways to be able to do that, right? Um, I think that's his main concern, not not necessarily to collapse the dollar uh, or the euro. At the same time, clearly, uh, given how uh, extraordinary the sanctions are against Russia, he has made a clear he is going to retaliate in kind, and so, yeah – I do think that there will be some um, efforts to undermine uh, the euro and the dollar. And he's already, for example, told the European Union that they would want to continue buying his natural gas. They're going to have to buy it in rubles, which is going to be very difficult for them to do, to maneuver that, especially, again, if they're going to honor sanctions. They're going to have to find a way to buy up rubles with gold or something. But again, I'm not sure that that's so targeted at undermining uh, the euro or the dollar so much as it is is defending the value of the ruble, which did take a hit initially after the sanctions sure. uh, were, were levied. But I, what I will say is this, whatever his intention. I think these sanctions will have the result of undermining the dollar, and I think it's in this way that very quickly Putin and China said, okay, we're going to start selling oil uh, using the Chinese yuan, and we're going to use our own banking system to do this. And India said, oh, yeah, we'll do that too. Right, and right. now Saudi Arabia Saudi Arabia is even saying maybe we'll trade in the yuan. So – all of a sudden, 
the dollar, which was the reserve currency of the world, may not be that anymore. And it may lose value. But again, not because of Putin's intentions, but because of the you know, what he's been forced to do with these sanctions. I think these sanctions that Biden has imposed are, are a mistake. I mean, they, they are just going to have a horrible boomerang effect. And they were not thought out particularly well. No, no, they and were they, not. Yeah. And, and also, you know, anything people this forget administration that. do seem thought out well? <laughs> well, that's a great question. I mean, clearly we have a guy who's president who – you know, it obviously is not, does not seem to be totally uh, the master of his uh, mental uh, faculties, if I can say it that. I'm trying to be say it in the most respectful way possible, but um, and I think a lot of this was knee jerk, right? And you know, the question is whether they can dial this back, especially you know, like when the war ends. Are they going to end those sanctions? I mean, that's a huge question. Um, and it's not clear that they are going to. And again, I think then we're, we are all in for a world of hurt because you're going to see inflation increase. You're going to see your, the currency you have in your wallet and in your bank become worth a lot less. Hey, oh. hello. Yep, I'm here. Yep. Oh, okay. No, we just uh, we had that. You know, something else I wanted to add in about this business with Russia. Uh, it's you know something I mentioned last week. Uh, I think one of the issues is that Putin isn't woke. You know, he's proclaimed Russia a Western Christian nation and. Uh, uh, you know, he doesn't fall in line with the uh, uh, transvestite viewpoint of things. Like, I'm sure he wouldn't favor this uh, male swimmer. And I think that's a lot of what's behind it also. Because you have fellas like me, sir. You know, I'm an older guy. Uh, I remember having to go under my desk in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis when air raid sirens were going off. And we had that every day. You know, we thought, oh, get under the desk. The Russians may drop atomic bombs. So I have no great love for the place. However, these past uh, 10 years or so has softened my opinion towards them because I do see them trying to survive. I do see them uh, battling against this uh, leftist woke garbage, and I support them. And now it gets to the point where I have – doubt and ex- have no expectations of credibility of any American government agencies. Like you mentioned at the top, the Supreme Court, I'm sorry, I don't have faith in them. I'd forget about the FBI, DOJ, and, and the rest of the uh, you know Cossack horde, I'll call them, because that's what they seem to me. They all seem to be working in conjunction. So that's another issue. He's not woke. Well, I, I certainly, and he has mentioned this, Putin has certainly mentioned this um, in some of his recent speeches. 
I think, though, that the the so-called woke issue is more of a, a pretext than anything. I do think it's used against Putin to gin up animosity towards him in Russia. Um, and I think it's used against other countries in that way. That is, if they're not – if they don't buy every particular permutation of political thought that we think is correct, that, that – countries are open to attack and i think we are seeing that with russia and and putin has been very uh open in that and again whether we agree with russia's views on all these things or not uh you don't go to war over uh those types of issues um and yeah I, i mean putin's very defensive about it and as you say about the orthodox church um in Russia, which he also sees under attack, I certainly think it's under attack in the eastern part of Ukraine. Um, and so, yeah, these cultural issues are used, I think, as a bludgeon, uh, not just against countries like Russia, but you know, within the U.S. as well. You know, you'll have someone who has a good view on something that we might agree with. I'll give an example, like a Tulsi Gabbard. She's been very mm-hmm. good on the war and peace issues. Yeah. Actually, so is T- Tucker Carlson. I was on Tucker Carlson uh, in yeah. February. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and people will discredit him because they don't agree with him on the cultural issues. And I may not agree with him on the cultural issues, but the fact you don't agree with him on those issues – doesn't mean you shouldn't doesn't mean he's wrong about these issues like Ukraine and Russia, right? But there is this thing about conflating all these things to discredit people, right? And to cancel people, which I find very disconcerting. And people, for example, the fact that I went on Tucker Carlson, people attack me, you know, a lot of friends, because I am from the left wing perspective. And so most of my friends are too, and they're like, "What are you doing going on Tucker Carlson?" You know, and I was like, "Well, <laughs> I'd go on Rachel Maddow if she'd have me." And by the way, I don't agree with Rachel Maddow on her international stuff. I agree with her on some other stuff, but that doesn't mean I wouldn't go on her show. But the fact is, she'd never have me on her show. CNN well, you know would what? never you have. Told me. your friends, you should have told your friends that you're a businessman. And you were going on Tucker Carlson to sell books because you wouldn't go on Rachel Maddow because the leftists don't read books. You, yeah, you well, know, I mean, the truth is, yeah. over there. Well, they they kind of implied that I was selling out to sell books, but again, like I said, <laughs> hey, I'd go on I'd go on these other shows too, but they're not going to have me. I mean, the fact is. Well, and I always quote Noam Chomsky, who used to say that the only person who gave him airtime on prime time was William F. Buckley Jr., right, a conservative. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the truth is I am finding that with this issue and with my book, The Plot to Scapegoat Rush, I am finding that the majority, I'd say strong majority – of shows that have me on are conservative talk shows or, or, you know, they seem to be at least more open in terms of having people talk about other issues, which I find a a bit ironic because liberals 
at least what I thought liberals were, was that they were more open-minded, etc. But now I find them to be more the advocates of, of censorship. And oh, yeah. there's been a bit of a a bit a bit of a switch politically. And the other interesting switch is I also find there to be a strong anti-interventionist uh, uh, position in the conservative movement, whereas the liberal movement seems now to be more pro-intervention, more pro-war. So it's a very interesting shift that's happening. You know, from my during my lifetime. Um, well, sir, sir, you know my, what? Yeah. Uh, as a student of these uh, Marxist leftists uh, from the Vietnam protest era, I'll tell you what they're up to. They don't care. They they have no regard. Their their pursuit is power and control. And if everything else goes yeah. to absolute, you know, hell in a handbasket, that they got no problem with that. Anyway, uh, that's, well, that's yeah, well, it is an interesting thing. And again, I, I do, I've seen a lot of people who, again, were more pro-peace, anti-war, who have shifted away from that. And again, I do think for opportunistic reasons, because it's easier for career advancement. Um, yeah, so it's an interesting thing. And it's a sad thing to see uh, happen. Yeah, um, 254, you have a question for Mr. Kovalak. Oh, um, I don't know if you can answer it, but um, I was thinking, do you, do you think that Russia will win over Ukraine in the war? Uh, yeah, as you say, uh, it's always a little dangerous to make predictions of the future, mm-hmm. but I will say that I, I think they will. I think honestly, what I'm reading and seeing, and I'm I'm trying to follow this as close as I can, as many of us are. I know we're all um, engrossed by this, but what I'm seeing is that the military portion of this has largely already been won. You know, the uh, Russia has, you know, was very quickly destroyed most of Ukraine's military capacity, most of their communication capacity uh, in terms of, you know, the military being able to communicate with itself, um, very quickly took domination over the skies of Ukraine. So I think largely as a initial military matter, Russia has won. But of course, what we saw, for example, in Iraq was that the U.S. was able to do that as well very quickly, but then you had an insurgency that went on for years, right? So that's going to be the question, really. What will Russia do in the next weeks and months? Uh, and that remains to be unclear. Um, but I think as a military matter, yes, they, they, they will win, and they largely have. But again, whether that will be a Pyrrhic victory, I, I don't know. And I think a lot of it depends on the peace discussions, which I hope are fruitful. Let me say I hope this is nego- a peace settlement is negotiated. I think that's the best way out of this for everyone. I think the U.S. should participate in that and support that. 
um, and that will also determine uh, the outcome. But I do think, you know, again, militarily, Russia is the much superior power here and, and has largely defeated um, the Ukrainian military. You know, as far as the military goes, what concerns me is our number one military man, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that uh, uh, I don't know what you want to call him, Millie, is on record as predicting, oh, the Russians will take Kiev in three days. Now it's a month in. This is our chief military man. He was that completely wrong. Uh, (laughs) I'm I'm concerned about everything about this damn government, everything. Yeah. Yeah. Although, the, let me just say something about that. I think they could have taken it in three days, um, but they didn't want to. That is to say that you know what they want to do is destroy uh, the military of Ukraine. They don't want to, if they don't have to, to take over Kiev, right? They, they. I think they definitely want to create at least an independent eastern portion of Ukraine. I don't think they're interested in taking over Kiev and therefore they haven't done it. That is to say, I think they could have done it and haven't and have held off. So I'm not sure that military well, leader was now, wrong. Now the news today is the Ukrainians have counterattacked and on the eastern part of the city have tossed the Russians back a few towns and the Ukrainians have actually gained ground uh, within their country. So I I don't, you know, you and I mm. could debate that Mm-mm. point uh, for a while because if I was Putin, no, I'd want Kiev because number one, isn't that the seat of the government? You chase Kerensky out of there or capture him or worse. Uh, it's a big PR victory. Ooh, we just took your capital. You know, whether you occupy the whole thing or not, just getting you know, armored columns into the city would be uh, a PR victory. And the one thing the Russians need now is a PR victory. Well, yeah, well, and that is the one thing I think, yeah, yeah, they failed at. I will just say the West has done a much better job of PR than Russia has. That's where Russia has really uh, gotten clobbered, for sure. 254, did that answer your question? Yes. Uh, my opinion about Ukraine and Russia, they're both uh, communist countries. Well, Ukraine's not a country. But I think that they should just give up and take it over and get peace out of it. That's my opinion. Wow, you think Ukraine no. should just surrender to the Russians? Why not? They're they're also communists. What good is that going to do? No, yes, no, they have no. all the I don't oil. Know if they're communists. I mean, they are corrupt. Uh, there's certainly Very no corrupt. angels and saints over there, but I don't think they're communists. Yes. And a matter of fact, Putin isn't even a communist anymore. Yeah, well, I think that is. The only I think communists are China, North Cuba, one, North one, Korea, Nicaragua. One person at a time. Hold on, one person at a time. Um, so, um, 254, is that any That's other my comments? opinion, because uh, the only reason I'm saying is that because eventually if they really want to take over it, they will. Okay. Uh, Daniel, well, I, I, wanted, I wanted to touch yeah. on something since, you know, on this program, we invite 
libertarians, right-wingers, left-wingers, anyone that really wants to have an open forum. So that's that was one of the and reasons I... And I appreciate I, Yeah, I, I felt that that... Yeah, I oh, wanted, I know, you, you know, know what? I'm sorry. I left out another communist area, and that would be Washington, D.C. I apologize for omitting <laughs> that true. from the shopping list. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I think there is – I do want to say I think there is a misconception. I think people do think Russia is still the Soviet Union and is still communist, which is not true, and, and, and neither is Ukraine. I mean, that that is very true, that they're not, though I think we are led to conflate the past with the present, right, which adds to, of course, people's willingness to hate Russia because they don't understand right. its its nature – um, and again, I don't think that Russia's goal, at least at present, is to take over Ukraine, but to neutralize it as a military power. So, mm-hmm. but we'll yeah. see if that if that can be done. Yeah. Well, seven three two five three nine. Do you have a question for Daniel? Yes. Um, why uh, you seem to be pro? Putin and I, I can't understand that. Why why did he go to war to start with? There's nothing to Well, I'm not pro Putin. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not pro Putin, but I think it's important to understand <laughs> what he's doing and why. I think we have to do that, especially if we want this to end. Why did he do it? And I'll tell you a few reasons. First of all, people have to understand that there's been a war going on within Ukraine for eight years, okay? That war did not start three or four weeks ago. And that war has been between the government of Kiev, which the U.S. backed, and in fact the U.S. helped install that government in 2014. It's been between that government and its own people, the ethnic Russians, okay? These are Ukrainians, but they're of Russian descent, and they speak Russian, in the eastern part of Ukraine. The government in Kiev has been hostile towards them. Uh, They actually outlawed Russian as uh, a second language to be taught in schools. The president, Poroshenko, who preceded Zelensky, actually said that the Russian ethnics in the eastern part of the country would have to live in bunkers, which they did have to because... The government in Kiev, as well as right-wing militias, and there are some neo-Nazi militias, that is a Mm -hmm. fact, attacked the eastern part of Ukraine. And 14,000 people, 14,000 have died in that conflict. 80% of those live in the eastern part of Ukraine. So 80% are civilians in the ethnically Russian part of Ukraine. Meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of these residents of the eastern part of Ukraine, because of being attacked, migrated into Russia. And so Russia has a legitimate security concern about what's happening. And by the way, many of those ethnic Russians in the eastern part of Ukraine are dual citizens. They're citizens of Ukraine and Russia. So these are their own citizens that are being attacked. Putin actually held off for eight years 
before doing anything to protect those people in a real way. What he saw was that before the invasion is that 60,000 Ukrainian troops were lined up on the border between western Ukraine and the Donbass region where these ethnic Russians live. And they had intelligence that there was going to be a major invasion of the Donbass by the Ukrainian military to wipe out the ethnic Russians in that part of Ukraine. And and you don't have to take my word for it. There's actually a, a, an American mm-hmm. military leader who's been talking about this, and his name is uh, Douglas McGregor. And you can mm-hmm. look him up. He's been interviewed. And he confirms that that was a fact. Okay, And they saw this happening, and Putin decided, I can't let that happen. I can't let these people yes. get clobbered. One, because... I need to protect them, but two, it's going to come back on us. We're right on the border. So there are rational reasons for what Russia did. Again, I'm not here to say that they should have done it, but what I'm saying is there were reasons you know, that were rational that led to this. And all Putin asked for before the invasion is that one – NATO say it would never admit Ukraine into NATO, and two, that the government in Kiev stop attacking their people in the eastern part of Ukraine, and they were not given those assurances, and in fact, the government in Kiev threatened even more violence against that part of Ukraine, and that's what led to this. Definitely. And, uh, uh did that answer your question, 732? Too confusing for me to even figure it out. <laughs> uh, once honest. again, um, Daniel, your website and also the books that you have written. And, and if anyone um, would like to go ahead and, yes. and purchase them. Yeah, you can go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, look for The Plot to Scapegoat Russia by Dan Kovalik. You can go to skyhorsepublishing.com and look for that title, The Plot to Scapegoat Russia. It'll tell you how to buy it. I'm also on Twitter at Daniel M. Kovalik, K-O-V-A-L-I-K. Definitely. Um, and that was Crimea. Crimea the war in, uh, for the fight for Crimea. Is that correct? What's that? I'm sorry. In regards to the, the war between Russia and Ukraine started in 2014, and that's due to Crimea. No, I would say Crimea was a result okay. of the initial conflict between Kiev and the Donbass and the people in Crimea who are mostly Russian. Uh, ethnics freaked out yeah Yeah. and they ended up having a referendum and massively voting to return to Russia because remember Khrushchev gave Crimea to Ukraine in 1954 so they had not been part of Ukraine before there and the Russians there said we want out and they had a referendum and by the way if even if you look up Time Magazine others recent articles saying the people in Crimea are very happy to be back 
uh, is part of Russia. So I would say that the Crimea conflict was more of a result of the initial conflict between Kiev and the Donbass. Yeah, and you know what? In addition to that, Crimea is the home or was the home of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. And I never thought the Russians were going to relinquish that. I didn't think they'd take all of Crimea, but I thought they would at least maintain that base, you know, like like we maintain Guantanamo and Cuba, a little slice of it. But uh, like you said, the Crimeans wanted the Russians, and, and he took it all. Uh, but I knew he wasn't going to give that up. You don't give up your biggest naval base to the south of your country. Yeah, again, especially when he had a government in Kiev that was hostile right, towards right. Russia and, and, and their own ethnic Russians okay. in their own country. Absolutely. And, I, and, I, and we want to make it real, real clear. We're not here defending Vladimir because he's a tyrant, in my opinion. He's still, you know, just like uh, Zelensky is a tyrant in Ukraine. He just perked, banned all opposition parties. So, you know, we're, we're not going to fight and, and say who's the better tyrant. They're all tyrants. The people in the Ukraine and, and, and everywhere else are the ones who are going to be suffering. But I, I, I just wanted to make that, that, that distinction. I wanted to talk in the last couple of minutes, South America, you, as a, you, had, you said that you're a leftist. Uh, South America mm-hmm. is going in that direction. Um, I think in Colombia, a leftist is, is, is leading. You've got a leftist in Chile. You've got a leftist in Uruguay, in Argentina. Ecuador. Ecuador. With the exception not of Ecuador. Bolsonaro. Not Ecuador right now. No, uh, no, Peru, no, yes. No, Bolsonaro. Yeah. Peru, yes. Bolsonaro in Brazil is, is, is a right-winger. Uh, He's a rightist. Yeah. But, yeah, so... How do you feel about that? Well, honestly, I support it. I, I mean, because I think this is how they wanted to go for years, and the U.S. has done everything it could to stop it, you know, coup d'etats and what. In fact, I'll, give you, I'll tell you one thing. Today is the feast day of a pretty new saint, St. Oscar Romero, who was designated a saint, canonized by the Roman Catholic Church, in 2018, he was killed by U.S.-backed forces in 1980 while saying mass, right? And then the U.S. was happy to go, you know, kill bishops and priests in Latin America who simply advocated for the poor. In most of these governments you're talking about, these are not hard-left governments. They are governments – they're essentially social democracy who want to bring some level of justice for the poor to end horrible – uh, economic inequalities, which have ca- of course caused crime and other things. I mean, I, I don't see why we wouldn't welcome those types That's of governments. I mean, they they more resemble Sweden than they do uh, the Soviet Union, you know. And I think we need to let them chart their own path. I, that's my own. Definitely. Well, we appreciate it. it. Was a very very. It's what I expected to have uh, having you on the program, Daniel, and. Um, Always welcome to come back, and definitely we'll promote your book uh, as much as we can. Yes, and I want to thank you for having me on. Hey, I really do. I appreciate you, and I'd love to come back. Thank you. Have a great night. 
All right. Yeah, good show. Thank you. Good night. Well, thank you. Week, good night. Good night. We'll have another exciting guest. So we look forward to it, and God bless America. Good night. All right.